Matthew chapter 9, as we continue to work our way through this first gospel in the New Testament, you might remember as we started that I shared with you that Matthew's testimony in this gospel is really quite simple. The king has come. That's the goal that Matthew has is to let the people know, to let us know that the long-awaited Messiah had arrived. You might also remember that Matthew is writing to a, a primarily Jewish audience. So throughout his gospel, you'll see him make many, many references to Scripture and how Jesus fulfilled Scripture to, to bring out the fact that he is the Messiah. More recently, we've been in chapters 8 and 9, and most of you in here know that throughout chapter 8 and 9, he's displaying his authority over all things in creation as he is coming to, Matthew is, is coming to a point of, of showing Jesus' authority demonstrated right after in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he preached with great authority. So not only is he one who teaches with authority, he is one who acts with authority. And if you think about Matthew 8 and 9, if you just consider the various miracles that Jesus did, you see him cleansing a leper, you see him healing the, the servant of the centurion early on in chapter 8, healing Peter's mother-in-law. He shows his power over the storm, over nature itself, calming a storm. He heals two men who have demons and casts them out. And then he heals a, a paralytic. We have the calling of Matthew. And after that, a, a question from the disciples about fasting leading up to uh, what we looked at a couple weeks ago, or actually uh, last week, a, a, a sick woman who had a, a bleeding condition being healed and then the dead being raised to life. Now, all of these miracles are things that God alone can do. And Jesus is doing these things that God alone can do. Matthew is showing us and demonstrating that Jesus has the authority of God. But all these miracles come to a point, kind of a, a crescendo here in the, the last part of chapter 9 with these two miracles we look at today. Because the two miracles that we look at today are specifically told of, foretold of, prophesied of in the Old Testament. And so you have Matthew laying out and saying Jesus is authoritative over all things and he's demonstrating, he's showing that power. But not only is he showing power in all of these ways and all of these aspects of life the, 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 through showing his, create, or his power over creation, over, over nature, over the spiritual realm, over our physical bodies, the authority to forgive sins. Not only is he doing all that and demonstrating his power, but he also is coming in direct fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah. So we read in Isaiah 90, or 29, verse 18, we read, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. So the deaf shall hear, the blind shall see. It was evidence of the Messiah. Then later in Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, we read, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then they shall, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See, the coming of the Messiah would bring sight to the blind and words to the mute. 
the one who was described as deaf or, or dumb or mute would speak again. His tongue would be loosed. Throughout the Old Testament, there's no account of a blind person being healed. The Messiah would do that. And so chapters 8 and 9 culminate with Matthew saying, Behold, the King has come. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is mighty. He is unrivaled in authority. He is the anointed one of the Lord. Let's read this morning Matthew 9, beginning in verse 27. The word of the Lord says this, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, The mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. You see, in these two instances, Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecies of Isaiah. And I realize that some of you sitting here today may be skeptical of Jesus. You may have in the back of your mind questions such as, was he really God? Or maybe it's even a step back for you. Would you perhaps be skeptical and say, is this even God's word? Is the Bible anything more than just a book? Is it really something that we should rely on? Is it something that we should believe when we read all these accounts of Jesus' miraculous works in, in Matthew 8 and 9? Should we really believe that? I mean, is it really worth me devoting my life to following this one Jesus who you claim to be the Messiah? There's a multitude of reasons that we could discuss this morning about why there is evidence, why we should indeed believe that the Bible is the Word of God and, and why Jesus is divine and He is who He says He is. But this moment, morning, briefly, I just want to point out two things that we see here. One, we think about the reliability of Scripture, the veracity of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture. When we look at it, we have to consider and acknowledge the fact that there, there is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament that we see fulfilled. It's not coincidental. It's not as though one thing was said and it just happened to happen. But we see throughout Scripture that we see prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life of Christ. We see that what God wrote in His Word comes to be. Because it is more than just a book. It is the divine, inspired, authoritative, inerrant Word of God. But not only do we see that, we see the fact that these prophecies, there's around 191 prophecies of the Messiah, and we see all these spoken in the Old Testament, and all of them are fulfilled in the life, death, 
resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. All of them. It's not as though he happened to fulfill one of them. All of them. 191. That points and shows, gives evidence to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who Scripture claims he is. He is who he says he is. Now listen, I, 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 I would be remiss to tell you or to make it as though that faith is not involved. You see, belief in Christ will always come down to faith. Scripture tells us that, that we are to have faith in Christ. But what you need to know if you're here today and you're a skeptic and you have questions is that just as there you must have faith in Christ, that faith is not blind faith. It's not as though you just kind of stick your head in the sand and ignore the evidence and go, well, I'm just going to choose to believe this. No, it's not a blind faith. It's faith that God has given us great evidence to see and behold. He's revealed his existence, his power, his divine attributes through creation. Creation declares the glory of God, declares his existence. He's revealed himself through Scripture. And we look and we behold and we see the evidence and we look and we look unto Christ in faith that he is indeed who he says he is. As a side note, if you're here and you're a skeptic and you would be so bold as to say, well, I'm not a man of faith. I trust in science revolution." And I would contend to you, you are a man of faith. Because just as it's faith to believe that God created all things, and we look to Jesus in faith for salvation, evolution will always come down to faith as well. So you are a man of faith. The decision you had to make is who do you trust? Do you trust men, the philosophy of men, or do you trust the Word of God revealed to us through Scripture? We look to Matthew 9 this morning, verse 27. We see the blind men, they come to Jesus and they call him Son of David. This is the, the first time that this title is used of Jesus. When they come and they, they look to him, they plead, have mercy on us, Son of David. It, it's a declaration that Jesus was the awaited Messiah who would come through the lineage of King David. You might remember the beginning of Matthew in, in the first verse of the book. When Matthew writes, the first thing he writes is, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, the, the prophecy of the Messiah, you hear this at Christmas often, but it says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. The Messiah would be from the lineage of David. It's what the prophet Nathan spoke to David in 2 Samuel seven sixteen. He said, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, coming the word of the Lord, your throne shall be established forever. The reign, the rule, the throne of David and his lineage would be established forever because the Messiah would come through that lineage. Matthew testifies that Jesus is the son of David and now these blind men come and they confess that he is indeed the son of David. After this point, he will be called the son of David six more times in the book of Matthew. It's the first of those times. And so we come in verse 28 and 30, we see that Jesus enters the house 
with these blind men following him. And it says, as Jesus passed on from there, that's kind of an indication that they likely are men who had heard about what had just happened. We, we have this ongoing narrative. And so as they hear, and, and obviously the blind man can't see what's happened, but they are hearing stories. They're hearing testimony of what Christ has done. They hear that he has, he has raised this, this young lady from the dead. They hear of him healing this lady who had been sick for 12 years. They hear him, how he's answered questions about fasting. They hear all of these things. And so when they know that Jesus is around, they cry out to him. They have understood. And they said, this is who he is. This is what he's doing. We are looking to him in faith as the son of David, the Messiah. We are crying out to him. The men's plea was what? For mercy, compassion. Oh, son of David, Messiah, would you please have mercy upon us? Would you have compassion upon us, son of David? Now, what is Jesus' response to this? What is Jesus' response? Look at your, your copy of the text. What is Jesus' response? They say, have mercy on us. And Jesus says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They say, yes, Lord. So Jesus asked them a question. Do you, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they say, yes. And then his response is what? According to your faith, be it done to you. Now, now this, this does not mean in response, or I mean, it means in response to your faith. It does not mean in proportion to your faith. That's, a, that's an important distinction there. When he says, according to your faith, it's not according to the, the size of your faith, the strength of your faith. He's just saying, according to your faith, in response to your faith. It's not as though great faith brings great healing, while weak faith brings a little healing. It's, it, that's not what we have here. It's a response to their faith. We, we've seen all sorts of faith in chapters 8 and 9, haven't we? You remember the great faith of the centurion? The centurion had such great faith that he said, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. You don't even have to go talk to him. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to be in his presence. You just say the word here and he'll be healed there, right? We see that great faith. But then we also see in the storm, what do we see with the disciples? Jesus kind of reprimands them. What? Oh, you have little faith, right? The disciples in the midst of the storm have, have little faith. So we see both little faith and strong faith in chapters 8 and 9. And so we know it's not, it's the measure of your faith is going to determine how much I heal you. It's the existence of faith. So it's, the, the measure of faith isn't as important as the existence of faith. He's just simply saying in response to your faith, you're healed, right? And then what does he do? It's an interesting thing, an interesting comment. He, he heals them, and it says, after their eyes were opened, he sternly warned them. He sternly warned them. This is a, a serious command. The, the word conveys this really deep emotion. It, it, it actually is used in other places in Greek with like a snorting a, of, a, of a horse, kind of gruff, a emotional, a strong response. Jesus sternly warned them. This word is not used very often. But here it is used by Christ. That he sternly warned them. This is very important. This is something heavy. What does he warn them? Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. I, I just gave you sight. Now don't tell anyone. That's an, that's an interesting thing. That scholars that 
the, they described this as was what's known as the messianic secret that, that Jesus says, don't tell anyone, I'm going to do this, I, I've, I've done this, and now don't go and tell everyone about it. And there's all sorts of questions. Why would Jesus do this? And, and evidently, he does this so that, that people don't come to follow him for the wrong reasons. They don't come to follow him on false pretenses. We see it elsewhere, John 6, 25 to 27, uh, Matthew 8, 4, he said the same thing. And particularly in John, it's right after the feeding of the 5,000. And, and we learn in Scripture that he understands that the people are wanting to follow him. They're wanting to worship him for what they can get, that they can get their stomachs filled. Here, this, this title, Son of David, it's a, he's a prophesied Messiah. And that title is right. It is a right title. It is his title. But it also would carry great kind of political overtones that could be misunderstood as the people would await and, and look forward to a Messiah that would free them from Roman rule. And, and Jesus understands this. He understands that his intent is not to free them from Roman rule. His intent is to free his people from the dominion of sin. He comes to free them to give salvation not from a country, but from the sin that holds us captive in our own hearts, and our own lives. So Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Now, we need to see what the men do. What do the men do? Verse 31, they disobey. It says, but, but they went away and they spread his fame through all the district, through all the area. They, they go and they tell about Christ. Christ said, don't do it. And they go and tell about him. Now, I find this interesting. And here's why I think this is interesting, why we need to stop here just for a moment and consider their response. Because they were told not to go and tell. We have been commanded to go and tell. And so while the men rebel, while they don't listen to Jesus, they go and proclaim and tell about him. We must not be those who have been commanded to go tell and don't go tell about him. We've been commissioned to go tell people about Christ. We've been commissioned to go and share the gospel. Every one of the gospels in that way. You know, Matthew 28, 19, it's the one that's cited the most. Go and make disciples. But the end of Mark, Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And the end of Luke, we read, repent, Luke, this is 24, uh, 47 to 48, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. We are to go and to proclaim. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We're commissioned to go. Before Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts 1.8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Brothers, sisters, we are called to go and proclaim the gospel. We're called to make his name known. The blind men were charged not to tell. We have been charged to tell. Their disobedience should spur us on to obedience. We must not be ones who would look at the disobedience of these two blind men and then go on to disobey Jesus and not tell what we've been told to tell. We must 
fulfill his commission. We must go and tell and proclaim the good news. We move on to verse 32 to 34 this morning. We come to the moment where a man unable to speak, a man who is mute, comes. We see the healing, the casting out of a demon in this instance. Mute here is sometimes translated, if you have a different version of Scripture, different translation, not version, but different translation of Scripture, it might be translated as deaf or one who is dumb. The the hymn we sang just a a few moments ago uh, referred to those who are dumb. What this means simply is, is not an intellectual statement. It's the fact that they are unable to speak, perhaps because they cannot hear, so they cannot speak. They're deaf. They do not have any words. They're mute. And so here, Jesus understands that the condition in this instance is they are demon-oppressed, and he casts out the demon. Now, it's important to note here as well that, that this is not always the case. It's not as though just because someone is mute that the biblical writers always say, oh, this is a, this is a demon possession and cast out a demon. The biblical writers know that there are differences at times where, where a physical condition is simply a physical condition, a physical ailment, there's sometimes where a physical condition is the result of demonic activity. We see that often in Scripture, the two, uh, the differences. We have, well, even in chapter 8, right? We have the, the leper, we have the centurion's servant. These are just simple physical ailments. We need to understand that and see the difference there. The biblical writers understand that. And here, there is a spiritual problem. There's demonic activity, and Jesus casts out the demons, in this, or the demon in this instance. Verse 33, when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and it brought the people to marvel at the works of Jesus. Satan was certainly active in the Old Testament, but no one had come and casting out demons as prolifically as Christ was. He and his authority was un precedented and it caused the people to marvel but the pharisees completely miss it don't they look at what the pharisees do the pharisees see this and the people are marveling the people are amazed they never has anything been seen like this in israel and the pharisees look and they say he cast demons out by the prince of demons they attribute the work of christ to the work of satan to the authority of satan that he is doing that on authority of satan now Jesus doesn't really respond to this here. But later, in Matthew 12, 22 to 29, he does. He confronts this accusation head on. But here he doesn't really say much about it. What we need to know at this point is this, is that as, as two men have just been healed of blindness, here we see the Pharisees showing themselves to be the ones that are truly blind. Ones that would look and say, say oh no, this is the work of Satan. We see the, the work in the hand of God, ones who would say, no, 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 this isn't the work in the hands of God. This is the work of Satan. Matthew fifteen fourteen, Jesus says of the Pharisees, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. In Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22, throughout that text, Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides, blind fools, and blind men. They're blind. The Pharisees are blind. We need to be careful. We need to be careful, and we need to be discerning of who we allow to influence our thinking and our beliefs. 
the Pharisees said this is the work of Satan. And the Pharisees were religious leaders, but they were blind. We need to be discerning in our day. We need to know, you need to know, you need to remember that there are many blind guides today as well. There are many blind guides. Some stand in pulpits every Sunday, every Sunday, preaching self-help, preaching the ways of man, preaching philosophies, ideologies of men, and not the Word of God, leading you to trust them, leading you to trust ideas, leading you to trust yourself. They're blind guides. Some of them post on YouTube every day. Self-declared influencers who seek the approval, seek your tuning in, and they influence you to think what they think and to approve of what they approve, and they are leading you and guiding you in very false ways. Some of you in here know what I'm talking about because you've watched something, you've seen something that's influenced your thinking only to later step back and go, wow, that is wrong. Why did I follow after that clip? We need to be discerning. We need to check everything against Scripture. Every Sunday when we stand here, whether it's me or someone else that steps into this pulpit, we expect you to be sitting with open Scriptures so that you can examine what is said that you can weigh it against Scripture, that it's not the word of a man, but it is the true word of God. Because if the blind lead the blind, both will fall in a pit. So don't follow the blind. Make sure, make sure that you're following men who stand on the truth of God's word and declare the truth of God's word. I want us to back up into the text I want us to look at verse 28 in the remainder of our time together this morning. Jesus asked a question. When the two men come to him, he asks them a question. They're pleading for mercy, right? They're calling him the son of David. What is the question that he asks them? Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able? This is a critical moment in this narrative. It's also a critical question for us to wrestle with and grapple with in our own lives. Do you believe that I am able? Do you believe that Jesus is able is the question. This question first is a, a very personal question, a very personal question. Je Jesus isn't concerned with what the disciples believe about him. He, he's not concerned with what the Pharisees believe about him. He's not concerned with what the woman believed about him or what Jairus believed about him or the centurion or the, the men he had uh, freed from the demons earlier. Now, in this instance, when these two blind men come to him pleading for mercy, he's concerned about what do they believe about him. They, they couldn't ride. Their faith could not ride on the shirt tail of those around them. Genuine faith is personal faith. And so what that means Practically for us as, as young people, you can't ride on the coattails of your parents. Genuine faith is personal faith. So when Christ looks and says, do you believe in me? Do you believe that I am able to save you? You can't look at him and go, well, mom and dad do. That doesn't count. He also, do you believe this? Genuine faith is personal faith. Jesus consistently asks this. He consistently puts us 
put that, puts that question before us in a very personal way in the New Testament. Later in Matthew 16, you, you might remember this is a, a very calm, very famous passage. It's Matthew 16, starting verse 13, says, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they, they answer him. He says, Son, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, some Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? We know what people are saying, but who do you say that I am? That's the question. That's the question. Who do you say that I am? Of course, Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Later, we, we talked about this passage last week, actually, but Jesus asked the same question. In, in John 11, he gets very personal with Martha and Mary. You remember he, he comes to the death of Lazarus, and he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then what does he ask her? Do you believe this? He's not asking about his, her sister. He's not asking about the mourners. He's not asking about the Pharisees. He says, do you believe this? It's a very personal question here. So do you believe that I am able? It's also a declaration, a doctrinal declaration. So it's a, a personal question and it's a doctrinal declaration. What is he asking? He says, do you believe that I am able to do this? He doesn't say, do you believe it'll happen if I appeal to the Father in heaven? He doesn't point to anyone else. He says, do you believe that I am able to do this? Are you looking to me in faith? Do you believe that I am the one who can? Do you believe what he's asking? Do you believe that I am God? Do you believe I'm divine? He's asking them. He gives them a choice. They say, yes, we do. You see, Jesus' life, his teachings, his works, his character, all demonstrate that he is divine. He is God. So if you would be gathered here today and go, well, I, I think Jesus is just a good teacher. He was a, a great moral example. Now, the testimony of Christ, the testimony of Scripture is that he is divine. He is God. Do you remember, we already read Matthew, I mean, Isaiah 9, 6. Do you remember what it said? It said that for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He is not just a man. He is God in the flesh. Matthew 1, 23, the beginning of the book. Matthew said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. In John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's introduction, the Word is Jesus. That's what he is using. That's who he's describing. Jesus was God. The Word was God. In Titus 2, 13, we read, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. In Colossians 2.9, we read that in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3, we read that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact 
imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in 1 John 5.20, we read that we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is divine. He is God. This demonstrated through his life, and here particularly, he demonstrates it through his marvelous works, through his mighty deeds in chapters 8 and 9. He is able because he is God. Do you believe that he is able is the question. Do I believe that he is able? That rests on the fact that he is God. And why is this important? Is it just this kind of exercise in theology this morning? That we would just have a theological lesson? No. See, the the belief that Jesus is able brings us to faith in him because we believe he is able to save us to the uttermost. It brings us to faith in him, but it also sustains us through the trials of life that we trust that he is able to hold us secure. He is able to do great and mighty things in our lives. You just, in the back of your head, I, I just hear the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, right? In Daniel chapter 3, they stand before Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, bow, and what do they say? Oh, no, we will not bow. Our God is able to save us. He is able. But if he doesn't, we will not bow. They know, they are confident in the ability of God. Now, again, I I recognize that maybe some of you are skeptical of Jesus' ability. Maybe you would say, well, what makes you say he's he's able? What what makes you so confident that he is able? Maybe you sit here and say, well, I've heard these testimonies. I've heard the stories in Scripture. I've heard testimonies of other people. But you know what? I prayed for this, and God didn't do anything about it. Is it because he's not able? Do you believe he's able? Are you skeptical? Let me tell you this. The ability of Jesus rests upon two things. It rests upon two things. When we think about the ability of Christ, we have to remember who he is, right? As a parent, as a, as a dad, most of, if you're in here and you're a dad, you probably don't know exactly what I'm talking about, but there is this period of fatherhood where your kids think you're able to do everything. Like, there was a time, Braden doesn't believe this anymore, but there's a time in Braden's life where I could be like, buddy, I'm going to go pick the truck up. And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? He, he's like, absolutely. You can do that. I'm going to go wrestle that bear and kill him with my bare hands. That's right, Dad. You do it. You know? He thought I was able. Now, completely unfounded, right? Braden now knows and understands that dad would die uh, with a bear. But he thought I was able. It's one thing to think that you're able when there's no foundation. There's nothing that would support that belief. But it's another thing to understand that God is able because of what his ability rests upon, okay? Okay? So what's the foundation? What does his ability rest upon? First, it rests upon his omnipotence. 
His power, that He has absolute power. He has the power to do what He wants to do. He possesses that power. Now, one who says he can do something yet has not the power to do it is not able. So I say, yeah, I can go pick up that truck, but I can't do it. Then you go, you're not able to do that, no matter what you say. But God possesses that power. Jesus possesses that power. He is omnipotent. That's why when Job, Job goes through all he goes through, and he appeals to God, he complains to God, he accuses God, and God replies with this incredible response. And then after God responds, Job looks to God and he says, I know that you can do all things. You can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job knew God could do all things because he is omnipotent. He is mighty in power. You read the whole of Scripture and you see that he is able because he is powerful. But secondly, The reason God is able, the reason Jesus is able, is not only is he powerful, but he has the authority. He is sovereign. He has the authority to do what he wants to do. So not only does he have the power to do it, but he has the absolute authority to do it. Again, one who says that he is able to do something, yet he has no authority, he's not really able to do it. But God possesses complete sovereignty. He has the complete ability because he is sovereign. He has authority. So we read in Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, where Jeremiah says, Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So the things that come to pass come to pass because God commands it because God is sovereign. He rules supreme. He goes on to say, Is it not from the mouth of the Lord Most High that good and bad come? Jesus, God is supreme. So the ability of Christ rests on his omnipotence and his sovereignty. But I also want you to understand that the ability of Christ is framed by two things. So it rests upon those two things. That's the foundation, his omnipotence and sovereignty, but it's also framed by two things. You understand the concept of a frame, right? That if there's, if there's no frame, I mean, you just think visually, if there's no frame, there's no limit. You don't know where to look. There's no frame here. I'm looking all over the place, right? Now, if you frame my field of vision, how's that work? Like this, right? Then I'm going to look right here and I'm looking right back at the sound booth because I'm looking through a frame and everything is blocked out with what's in that frame. It's framed by, it's limited by, there's boundaries too. So the, the ability of Christ is framed by these two things. One, by his nature and character. It's framed by his nature and character. It's framed by who he is. What this means is it helps us understand that God will do what is most wise because he possesses perfect wisdom. He's omniscient. It's who he is. It's his character. It's an attribute of his that he is perfect in wisdom. We don't have time to go there, but you can just write down Romans eleven thirty three or Psalm 139, 1-6. Both of these declare the immense wisdom, omniscience of God. So he does what is most wise because he possesses perfect wisdom. He will also do what is good because he is good. He does what is good because he is good. That's why Psalm 119.68 says that the Lord, O Lord, you are good and you do good. So, so we understand that the things he does are going to be wise. They're going to be good because of who he is. 
We understand that, that all that God does is right and pure because God is holy. So you look to texts like Isaiah 6, verse 3, or you look to uh, Psalm 99, and you see God declared to be holy. Throughout Scripture, He's holy. So what He does is holy. It's right. It's righteous. It's pure. It's without sin. God's not going to do something outside of those things. So it's framed by His nature, His character, who He is. The second thing that frames God's ability, what He does, is His purpose and plan. So the first is his nature, his character. The second is his perfect, I mean, his, his purpose and plan, what he has ordained. So God will accomplish all that he has planned. But that also means that he will not do anything outside of his plan and purpose to do. It's not as though that we come and whatever we wish and desire, God's going to do. If it's outside of his plan, outside of his will, outside of his purpose, we don't get our whims and desires. That's why there have been so many things in my life that I've prayed for that God has not done. Some of them I don't understand why he hasn't done. Some of them I'm still praying. I've been praying for years and years and years. God, please do this. He hasn't done it. Maybe I get to the end of my life and I see that God said no. Maybe it wasn't time yet. Maybe there was something different. God is going to do what he has purposed, what he wills to do. We read in Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He doesn't do all that I please. Praise the Lord. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46.10-11, we read, my counsel shall stand, says the Lord, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I've spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God will do what he purposes. See, his ability rests upon his power and his sovereignty. It's giving clarity. It's framed by his character, his nature, his purpose, his plans. And if you still wonder, you still question, should I remind you of the the marvelous things He has done? The mighty works of the Lord, that He spoke creation into existence, Psalm 33, 6 says. In Exodus, or I mean Genesis 37 to 50, we read about how God used an Egyptian Pharaoh to provide for His people. In Exodus 14, we read of how He divides the Red Sea to free His people from Egypt. In Joshua 6, we read about how the walls of Jericho were reduced to to rubble by the power of the Lord. In Joshua chapter 10, we read about him causing the sun to stand still. In John 11 and Matthew 9, we read about him raising the dead. In Matthew 14, we read about him walking on water. In Matthew 28, we read about him raising from the grave. The Lord has done marvelous things because the Lord is able to do marvelous marvelous things and so the question the question i think we have to be asked today is do you believe that he is able to do it do you believe that he's able to do it and some of you come and you're sitting in here and you're listening to this under the weight of guilt and condemnation of sin 
And, and you experience that every day because you're trying to pay for your sin, atone for your sin in your own ways, maybe by being a good person or, or learning certain things or doing or achieving certain things. You're trying to just be religious. Or perhaps maybe you're, you're one that is, you just choose to ignore death because you don't want to think about what happens next after death. So you just choose to busy yourself and ignore it. Or, or maybe you, you gather and you sit in here and you have filled yourself with hope in people and, and things, ignoring the fact that they will disappoint you. That ability that you have, there will be a day that you don't have that ability. That person that you're hoping in, there will be a day that person is not here. Hope outside of Christ is temporary. Hope in Christ is eternal. Do you believe that Jesus is able to save you from your sins? Do you believe that He is God? The writer of Hebrews in 7, Hebrews 7, 24 to 25 said that Jesus holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. That's His position. Now what He says here is important. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Do you believe this? Do you believe that He is able to save you from your sins? Do you believe that He's paid the price for sin? That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of the message of the coming of Christ, that God sent forth His Son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for my sins, for your sins. He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin and the great promise the great good news is that if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and you believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved that's the good news it's not about achieving it's not about doing it's not about being it's about trusting christ would you respond in repentance and faith do you believe he is able to save you some of you are Christians. You're following Christ and there's something in your life you're facing that just seems insurmountable. You've received news this week, perhaps even this morning, of something that seems insurmountable. You know no option. There's nothing you can do. Do you believe that He is able to do it? Maybe it's healing. Maybe you just come on weak knees. You need strength. Maybe it's reconciliation in your home with your family members, with a friend, restoration. Maybe it's provision to be able to make it through another week providing for your family. Do you believe that He is able? He's demonstrated it. He's declared it. We'll soon come to the passage where Jesus says, with God all things are possible. Do you believe he is able?
to do it. Let's pray. Instrumentalists are going to come up and as they do, before we sing our final song, I want to just give you a few moments just to pray. Perhaps that is you praying and coming before the Lord for the first time and asking Him to save you, turning from your sin, confessing your sin to Him and looking to Him in faith. Confessing to God, Jesus, you are Lord. I believe that you rose from the grave. Would you please save me? I'm turning from my sin. Would you save me? I believe you're able. Or maybe, maybe you're here and some of the things I described at the end is kind of where you're at. Use this time to pray. Ask God to do what only God can do. Maybe it's healing for you or a family member. Maybe it's reconciliation between someone. Maybe to save a marriage of someone that you love and hold dear. Maybe to bring a family member to salvation 